At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, we are talking to Tony Smith-Thompson. Now, if that name sounds familiar, you might remember Tony Smith as a basketball player at Manhattanville College, who in the 2002-2003 season turned her back to the flag during the national anthem, creating a uproar, the likes of which was really a precursor, a canary in the coal mine, to everything we saw with Colin Kaepernick in 2016. Now, two decades later, after being really erased from the school's history and erased from popular history, as this country so often does to rebels who are deemed to be before their time or prematurely anti-war, anti-imperial, anti-capitalist, what have you, she's been revived by Manhattanville. Two decades later, the school gave Tony Smith an honorary doctorate and she delivered the commencement at Manhattanville College. So we're going to talk to Tony Smith-Thompson about what that experience was like coming back to Manhattanville and actually getting some glory after all these years of erasure. And I think that story is really important, frankly, because you know we're living in times that aren't exactly inspiring and where a lot of people who put a lot of work into a lot of activism over the last 15 years are looking at this right-wing hellscape and wondering what it was all for. And I like Tony's story because there's something in there uh, about what it means to persevere and what it means to stand true to what you believe in and what it means when people finally catch up. I've also got some choice words about where are the male athletes for Brittany Griner that I want to speak about. And I also have a new segment called Topics with Jake. All right, we're working on a better title than that. But Topics with Jake is where we start. I think we're going to keep Jake's takes just for NFL picks. But Topics with Jake are just musings about certain things in the sports world. Me, my now 14-year-old son, Jacob, and uh, people seem to like it. So what the heck? But first, let's talk to the person of the hour, Tony Smith-Thompson. First and foremost... Can you, can you just speak just for our, for our listeners um, about what your motivations were 20 years ago in terms of turning your back on the flag? Because it's a lot more complicated, I know, than just uh, opposition to the wars uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq. Yeah, it is more complicated than that. Um, thanks for asking about my motivations back then, um, which I've thought about a lot about recently. It was a combination of me growing into my own activism during my years um, at Manhattanville. Um, that is when I started taking courses on 
I made, I decided to major in sociology. So I was taking courses on the prison industrial complex, gender studies, media studies, really making connections between my own lived experiences and our societal structures and systems. Um, and then combine that combined with um, fostering a friend group that was also really um, social justice oriented. And we started engaging in activism together uh, you know, traveling to Albany to protest the Rockefeller drug laws was big at that time. And so that was one piece of it. Another piece of it is that 9-11 happened in the middle of my college experience. And so I left New York City pre-9-11 and came back to the city, um, you know, for summers and um, different breaks and saw how the city was changing in response to 9-11. Um, and how that initial mood of unity in the immediate aftermath very quickly turned to revenge. Um, and, you know, the emergence of see something, say something, um, which I just heard on my way home just now, um, you know, uh, two decades later, that mantra has stayed with us. And that mantra was born out of suspicion of others. Uh, and so by senior year, I had a much different lens about all of these norms and traditions, both on the court and off the court, and had a more um, had a more critical lens about what they all meant and how they all feed the culture collectively. And so, you know, going into college, I I, I didn't in high school I didn't we didn't stand for the um, national anthem before games because there was no national anthem before games. Most gyms didn't even have a flag or proper facilities or anything. So you just played. So all of that was new going into college anyway. Um, and so the national anthem was never a comfortable practice for me in the first three years that I played. But by senior year, I had really taken on a different meaning um, with the culture of um, obedience, the culture that was really against dissent. Um, all of that kind of fed into senior year me looking at that practice differently and saying, actually, why, why do we have to do this? This is no longer, it's not benign. Mm. And now it's really, it's really apparent how, um, how not benign it is. Mm -hmm. Now, how would you judge how Manhattanville, um, let me do that again. How would you judge how Manhattanville responded to your protest and what perhaps would you have liked to have seen them do differently in retrospect? I can answer this question two different ways. From the then standpoint and from the now standpoint. Then in the post 9-11 period, I would say that there was a pretty low bar of expectations um, with regard to how a school, what a, what a progressive, thoughtful school would do in response to dissent um, because the culture was really um, not supportive of dissent broadly. And so then the president of Manhattanville at the time was, was really um, supportive of students' rights to, students' ability to express themselves on campus. And the school's mission is to develop ethical and socially responsible leaders. And so I do think the president wanted to demonstrate a level of commitment to that. 
Uh, and you know, there were plenty of there were plenty of detractors, plenty of upset upset um, trustees and parents and alumni. Um, but he did publicly support my right to express myself. And that was not, it was not very common in the public discourse then, because a lot of the very visible um, school administrators, especially in the sports realm and coaches, were, were pretty vocal that they would not tolerate that on their team at mm -hmm. that time. Um, so then that did feel like a significant piece of support. Um, and the same was true for my coach at the time who, who said the same thing, you know, we're going to do what we can to support our athletes to kind of have a place on the team and also be able to express themselves. Um, and so that, that was important. And there was another, there was another basketball player at that time who there was an article about her protesting similarly. And after one game, she no longer protested. You know, and it it seemed like reading between the lines of the articles that the administrators and coaches were like, "Yeah, you're gonna stop, mm. or you're not gonna play." Mm. So you said that um, now, in retrospect, what would you have liked to maybe have seen them do differently after your stance? In retrospect, um, and this is now as an adult who uh, works with young people and specifically works with young people in the course of activism, I can see, I can see how important it is for adults to not just affirm young people's rights to express themselves, but actually be an ally or an accomplice or a co-conspirator co -conspirator to help them get through the roadblocks that they're gonna be facing. And one of the ways that I see that grownups could have done that for me is to not just stop at saying, I support her right to have her opinions, but to actually say what she's saying is valid, maybe we should listen, right? Like I actually, I support and I agree. And maybe they didn't agree and that's fine. But in, in retrospect, there is a gap there that it wasn't present. There was no adult that said, this, this is an important conversation and her protest is important and I stand with her. Mm. And maybe there were no adults that felt that way. I don't know. Um, but as an adult now, that's my bar for myself when I work with young people. Do you think if you had to do it all over, knowing now what you did then, and good Lord, I can think of a million things in college I wish I knew I knew now that I knew then and all that stuff. But do you think you would have attached your protest to demands around the school, picking up issues around racial equity or against war? even like town meetings to discuss it. Um, Cause that's what I've seen in my book, The Kaepernick Effect. That's what I saw, not all, but some of the students do when they took a knee was attach it to things that they wanted from the school. Yes, I have a lot of, um, I think about that a lot. I think about how the, um, I always saw my protest as a very solitary act, not because it seemed better or more noble or anything for it to be that. But I didn't even consider that it could be collective. Mm. I didn't consider that others would participate. I think I hadn't thought through what it would, how I would take the steps to organize other people to join me. 
Um, without social media, then there would have had to have been some level of thought to reach beyond my own school to other athletes. And um, so that's on. So that's one one piece of it is that I didn't even consider maybe among us athletes, there is something for us to say on the court um, or within our our athletic kind of sphere. But then beyond that, I also wasn't thinking about the possibility that the protest could directly be connected to a d demands related to our own school. Um, and certainly as the protest continued over the course of the season and it became a bigger story and the, um, the tensions on campus were very visible along racial lines. Um, even then there wasn't really a, there wasn't a consideration, like maybe there's, there's something on campus to do with this, um, very visible, I hesitate to use the word reckoning cause we've used it so much in the past two years, yeah. but, um, but it was revealing. It was, it was very revealing. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know that it was a reckoning. <laughs> but given all you just said, um, how did you come to be invited back to be the commencement speaker at Manhattanville and to be awarded an honorary doctorate? How the heck did that happen? Yeah. Um, a lot. So how it happened, a lot of it had to be um, told to me because a lot of this was happening without my direct involvement. Um, in 2020, when all the things were happening, there were, there were a couple of different things happening. So one is that in 2020, I got a call from the first person at Manhattanville in 17 years who was interested in talking about the protest. Mm. And this was, I'm sorry, hold on. <clears throat> oh, it's okay. We have full editing. Okay. Um, and the first call I got was from a professor, not teaching sports studies, but teaching a, a course in, um, oh man, it was like a, some kind of design course, not like arts and design, but like a, like design having to do with like cities and, hmm. and structures and things. Um, and so it wasn't, it wasn't the course that I would naturally think I would get a phone call, um, to participate in. Um, so I was invited to speak with that class and I did, and I think that had some resonance with some of the students. And then, um, and then I got another call from another professor sometime later in 2020 or 2021 um, in the sports studies department, in the sociology department specifically um, on, with regards to sports studies. And so when I spoke to those students, I think that also really made some kind of lasting impact. And then they, the students, some of the students organized um, a broader talk with the, with the, um, with the alumni like with the alumni department to offer an event open to the whole school with me. So I did a couple of events with students specifically, like specific classes, and then with the broader school community. Um, so then, you know, this was over the course of maybe a year. I probably spoke maybe 
three to five times with different groups of people about the protest, about what happened since then, all of the things. And I connected with students, which was wonderful. Um, and so out of all of that, um, and there were, while this was happening, there were students at Manhattanville engaging in um, addressing issues on campus like students were doing across the country, right? Everybody's interrogating their own institutions. So that's happening as well. And so um, on social media, like on Manhattanville's Instagram page, there were black students um, commenting on the school's page about issues at the campus and people are tagging me in those. And then, um, and then there were there were other things. So like 2020 was just like a year of upheaval. And so all of this stuff is just coming to the surface um, at the same time and beginning to come together. Uh, and part of that was students bringing back into the current conversation at Manhattanville, the story of um, the young black women, the students who took over Brownson Hall, which is one of the dorms at Manhattanville in 1969, demanding um, making a set of demands with regard to racial justice on campus. So all of this is sort of germinating on campus. Um, and some of the students decided that they wanted to, they wanted the school to more formally recognize my protest. Mm. And so I think they, um, they came together, they came up with different um, ideas. And one of the ideas that was put on the table was an honorary degree. And so then they campaigned um, the president and whoever else to to make it happen. Wow, what a story. You know, it reminds me so much of the story of how the statues of John Carlos and Tommy Smith ended up at San Jose State. That yeah. it came from it's the true. students. And if the students hadn't organized for it, it never would have happened. So the word reckoning becomes very important because this is the students basically saying to Manhattanville, you haven't reckoned with your own history. With That's right. To Tony Smith Thompson, is, is that correct? That is correct. That is my understanding. And it became really visible because as Manhattanville is reckoning with its own history and place in the 2020 Black Lives Matter movement, or the 2020 year of the Black Lives Matter movement, the, um, there, was a, there was a jump from the 1969 Brownson takeover to today. So the, the 2003 protest wasn't part of that arc. And at the same time, I had reached out to Manhattanville um, to see if they had archival footage because I was looking for whatever footage I could find for a different project. And the archivist said, there's no archive here. There's nothing. Um, the VHS tapes are gone. Nothing wow. was digitized. Um, and so you know, this, this event in 2003 that was all over the news, for however long, I always think it was longer than it actually was, um, that like the heart of it period. But, you know, there was countless um, tapes, right, of, of news stories and whatever. Um, and most of them are gone, actually. Very, very little has survived. There's a, um, there are people working on a documentary. And so that was why I was looking for archival footage, but they also were looking for footage. And so multiple people over the years have kind of looked to, through to local media, to national media, different places to see what footage survives. And it's very little. Um, and so even at Manhattanville, there was not an effort at the time and, and no effort in the years since to make sure that that piece was recorded. And it, I, don't think, I don't think it was necessarily intentional. It just, in the course of things, if you're not thinking about it 
Yeah. If you're not intentional about it, it doesn't happen. Um, and so this piece was kind of written out of Manhattanville's story of itself in a, in a formal way. You know, maybe maybe it survived in small pockets of the sociology department, um, but not much beyond then. So it this is really incredible to me because the students, what they've done is demanded that the story get written back into the history of yeah. the school. So I, I now want some some details. Uh, how was your reception at the school? Uh, who was there? Any old teammates, old coaches? Was it? A, did it feel like a homecoming? What? What? Give, give us the whole vibe. <laughs> um, I didn't tell that many people uh, that I was being honored. I wasn't because it's honorary degrees at commen commencements are hard to. They're hard to place because the commencement is about the graduates. It's really not about the honoree. And I was also giving the commencement speech, so my focus. Uh, the focus of my remarks are to the students. So I was really not sure how much of the event was really worth sharing to people in my circles, because it wasn't really my event. But anyway, that was that, that was my conundrum. Um, so I, I told a couple of teammates, like the ones who I've kept most in touch with, um, but I, I didn't have people there at the event. I didn't have my, my whole family there. I didn't have teammates there. Um, and so the, so the reception was, it felt a, it felt a little like a homecoming. Um, and maybe, maybe homecoming is not quite the right word, but I left Manhattanville with a, a tear in the relationship. There was a, there was a distance that I felt. And so the way people feel about their alma mater often, I didn't leave with that same feeling. I left with sort of a, a what if it could have been that and a little bit of a disappointment that it wasn't that. Mm. Um, and that never got repaired. And I, you know, it's been a long time, so it's fine that it didn't get repaired. And at the same time, once I was back on campus, the, you know, the nostalgia sets in, you see what's new on campus. And there is a piece of it that does feel like full circle, which is which is always nice for your own kind of rooting. Um, but it was none of none of the same people. There were maybe a couple a couple of faculty who are still there from my time, um, and that was nice. But but it felt brand new. Honestly, it didn't feel like I was coming back home to the same place. It felt like a new community was welcoming me back into a space that I used to know. Did, did you feel 100% welcome back? Did you feel like there were pockets of people not thrilled that you were the speaker or getting this degree? I felt 100% welcome back. The um, the president did say that there, there were some messages he got from people who were not thrilled that I was invited back. Um, and they he said that they had made arrangements for a contingency plan just in case anything, there was a disruption or anything, mm. but there wasn't. Um, there was a dinner the night before with um, different different faculty and the students, which was wonderful. Um, I felt very welcomed back. I did feel like the, the dinner was in my honor. Um, and the, and the commencement the next day was, was lovely. It was peaceful. It was lovely. Um, I felt 
that my remarks were, were well received. Um, and then it was, but, it, but then it was over, you know, it was, I, I, I didn't feel like the event was about me. So it was, it was just a privilege to be a part of it. Well, what did you say? Like, what did I say? Yeah. I focused a lot on, and this was another challenge because the event is theirs. And also I felt like it was important for people in the audience, students and their families to know who I am and why I'm here. Like, why does it, why do I get to be standing here giving remarks? And so I was speaking to the students, but I wanted to speak to the students in a way that their families could appreciate what I was saying to them, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and so I, I told the story. I really told the story of the beginning of my time at Manhattanville to how I, how I got here, specifically focusing on what changed in me as a student over my time at Manhattanville that led to my decision to protest. Um, that the gap in between 2003 and 2016, um, how 2016 became a, became a pivotal moment to bring, breathe new life into my protest, which you were very instrumental in also, Dave. And then, um, and then how 2020 shifted it again. So really talking to them about how each moment breathes new life into a, a piece of this story, which led them to want to piece together more of the clues for themselves and their own story, which led them to want this piece of history woven back into the school's history. Mm. Um, and so really the remarks to them were about in the course of everyday information, you have to be intentional to create what the meaning is of all of that. Mm. That, it, that having all of the documentation we have especially now, don't take for granted that it's always going to be there. Don't take for granted that you'll always have access to your history. And don't take for granted that people who didn't live the history will be able to properly understand it if you don't create the context for what it, for what it exists within. Um, and, you know, and so 2020, or like these, these years that they've been in school, um, not just 2020, but thinking about the last two years in particular, this is going to be one of those times where people in years in years after years to come are going to say what happened in 2020 we need to understand what happened in 2020 so that we understand where we are now and where we're trying to go and the people who lived and specifically thinking about college students where so much of this kind of life and activity is born and happens um people who were in college during this time it's going to be important for people to be able to offer or recall or save stuff to be able to say, here's what happened in 2020. Here's how we navigated it. Here's what was important. Um, and here's what you can take with you to create your own roadmap. Um, and these were all things that I assumed would have survived my time at Manhattanville, but they haven't survived. Mm. And so the students today have had a really hard time trying to piece together the history of their institution so that they could place themselves in it and make meaning and then decide how to use that to go forth and continue on in their own journeys. 
um, it's been really hard to recreate that. And, um, you know, we all do our, we all do our best. And part of my remarks were recognizing that it was really a lot of my own, what I'm able to offer students today is only possible because journalists like you and artists and other people have done really incredible and difficult work to weave back into our stories all of these pieces of history that are very buried often from public consumption um, or undertold or omitted, all of that, and um, recreating it for us, us meaning people who take stands um, at different moments for different causes across generations. Like a lot of those connections have been created for me through work of you and other people um, like you committed to this. And so, you know, that's really what I was, what I was focused on was that the, it's, it's important to create that now when it's fresh, because even in trying to recreate it, even, even in us trying to recreate the last 20 years ago now, there's so much missing. There's so much I don't remember. There's so much context that would have been valuable for students today that is just no longer available. Um, and they have access to so much now, but actually the uh, being inundated with information and, and misinformation probably, I would say, might make it harder for them to pull from that the pieces that are important for the stories that you're gonna wanna tell. Absolutely. Wow, that, that that was a terrific answer, Tony. And it it answered about all of my remaining questions. <laughs> Fantastic. So I just wanna, you've been so generous with your time. Let me do, first and foremost, can we call you Dr. Tony? Okay, so listen, I don't know the answer. I did look this up because I have no idea how honorary degrees work. Um, what I have found so far is that it is not customary, but I feel, but that maybe there's wiggle room for you to decide on your own. So maybe, uh, listen, I saw this morning that um, that Taylor Swift also got an honorary degree from NYU yes. and the article referred to her as doctor. So I feel like if she, if she can say doctor, I can say doctor. Right on. And, you know, Dr. John Carlos, you know, that's an honorary PhD he got. And I'll always call Dr. John, Dr. John. So same. I got, got to he, call you He's doctor. definitely doctor. Oh my goodness. And I'm wearing um I'm wearing today a tank top of the 1968 Olympics what? um iconic photo right now that I pulled out of my drawer. This is a shirt that was mailed to me by someone in 2003 mm. that I have maybe worn a handful of times ever. That's so cool. This was not planned, people. No, so, it wasn't. That's so cool. So and one last question is what, what an, first of all, what an amazing moment for you. I'm so happy about it. As I said in the intro, it, it's, it's way too rare that, you know, people who really do put themselves on the line get to, get to feel that sense of, okay, what I did was appreciated and I have not been written out of the history because far too often the opposite is what takes place. So that to me is what's really inspiring about this story is that it's a great lesson to folks that if, if you keep fighting, that there there is appreciation at the, the end of the rainbow, not just being ground to a nub. And I think that's so important for people to know. So in, in this incredible moment, what has been your musical soundtrack? Have you been listening to music back from the early aughts or, or what? what? What were you listening to like on your way up to Manhattanville? Oh my God. I am, um, I'm not a great person to ask this question to and I listen to your pod and I know you always ask this question but 
I wish I was more of a like serious music listener than I am, but I'm I'm more I am more energized by pop music than I like to admit. And embarrassingly, this means that all of the music that my kids listen to in the course of their music and movies and all of that is the stuff that I'll, I'm willing to just listen to. So as it's in the background, I'm like, oh, this is a nice bop. This is a nice bop. Um, but when I get intentional, yes, I go back to um, I go back to the 90s. I go back to 90s rap, hip hop. Um, I go back to Missy. That's always like one of my go-tos if I need to be energized. Um, I go back to TLC. I go back to Salt and Pepper. Those are like the like the 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 women's the women's groups of the '90s are definitely my core. Hey, given that you know they stopped making good music after the '90s, I totally respect that answer. <laughs> um, I don't want to be one of those grown-ups, but I, <laughs> I don't. I've I think I have passed my peak of being able to consume much of um today's today's music oh um, sadly oh clearly except for animated movies which have gotten me yeah seriously um but yo thank you so much for the time tony i really do appreciate it doctor you're very welcome (laughs) doctor that's so cool and i'm just so happy for you it just it it really does fill my heart so good on you I appreciate that. And as one of the first people, maybe the first who really spoke to me and interviewed me in depth, um, this feels like a bit of a full circle for you as well. It certainly does for me in a big way. Uh, Yo, for everybody out there listening, uh, how can people keep up with what you're doing, Dr. Tony? I am on Twitter, although I have largely stopped tweeting because I needed a break from the medium. But... um, I am making it a goal to be more intentional about using Twitter to find a way to use it meaningfully in a way that I enjoy and that is useful for people and use it. So that is a good way to get in contact with me and stay in contact with me because even though I'm not tweeting, I am lurking and reading messages. And so that's at uh, MS Tony J. Excellent. Uh, Thank you so much. This is amazing. Uh, We'll be right back after a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast. The Nation Magazine. We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation Magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe. And please never forget that when you support The Nation Magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now I've got some choice words. Where are the male athletes standing up for WNBA superstar Brittany Griner? The Phoenix Mercury Center has been held in a Russian prison, of course, since February for being caught with vape cartridges, according to Russian officials, containing oil derived from cannabis at a Moscow airport. Between Russia's war on Ukraine and the near-complete breakdown of diplomatic ties between the United States and Russia, Griner has become a Russian pawn And despite WNBA players showing solidarity with male athletes over the last several years as they protested racist police violence, as the Women's League works to raise awareness for Griner's plight, 
their male counterparts in the male-dominated sports media have been disturbingly quiet. Griner appeared in a Russian court May 13th, but in a development that seemed as predictable as the setting sun, her pretrial detention was extended another month. The U.S. and Russia exchanged prisoners late last month, and experts say Russia still desires the release of notorious Russian arms dealer Viktor Bout, the merchant of death who's serving a 25-year sentence here in the U.S. Russia is mercilessly allowing Griner to twist in the wind as she awaits a fate that could include a 10-year prison sentence. It is a dire situation, and the WNBA is fighting to get Griner home. The league's fight follows two months of silence requested by the U.S. State Department and Griner's wife, Sherelle, as the U.S. attempted to negotiate with Russia. But now that the State Department has declared that Griner has been, quote-unquote, wrongfully detained, the players are speaking out. Some of the most prominent athletes in the league, for example, Seattle Storm superstar Brianna Stewart, are appearing on news programs, tweeting and speaking to reporters after games about Griner's plight. They are doing exactly what they should be doing, raising the temperature on the State Department and demanding that it use whatever back-channel options still remain with Russian President Vladimir Putin's regime to bring Brittany home. In addition, the WNBA has a decal and tribute to Griner on every court and is donating to Griner's charitable foundation. But it looks like the men's league and most sports media outlets cannot be bothered with what ought to be the biggest story in the sports world. As for sports media outlets, it's hard not to conclude that just as they give women's sports short shrift in their programming, less coverage, less debate, fewer highlights, so too have they made Griner's story an afterthought. Do we doubt for a single solitary second that if Tom Brady were in a Russian prison at such a perilous time, that it wouldn't be a daily story? Can anybody argue that there wouldn't be a graphic on the screen keeping track of how many days he's been in detention and separated from his family on the other side of the world? While the inaction of mainstream sports media has been drearily predictable, the silence from male athletes has been most disheartening. The Phoenix Suns, who've been eliminated from the NBA playoffs, were by my count the lone exception. Coach Monty Williams spoke out, and point guard Chris Paul showed up to a playoff game against the Mavericks, ready to discuss Griner. He said, this isn't just an NBA or WNBA thing. I think everybody wants her home. She's a huge part of the community here. We all support her, and we just want to try to get her home as soon as possible. All support for BG. We miss her. NBA Commissioner Adam Silver also said Tuesday that he's working with WNBA Commissioner Kathy Engelbert to win Griner's release, and that the NBA's previous silence was advised by experts. But seemingly, that's no longer the advice, and still, the NBA stars have been mostly silent. Between 2012 and 2020, when male athletes spoke out against racist police violence in unprecedented numbers, WNBA players did more than offer support and solidarity. They were leaders. Colin Kaepernick protested racial injustice during the playing of the national anthem in August 2016, but WNBA players had protested racial injustice earlier that summer. When the sports world was reeling from the pandemic and the police murder of George Floyd, the women of the WNBA campaigned hard for the Reverend Raphael Warnock, who at the time was running against then WNBA franchise owner and Donald Trump supporter Kelly Loeffler to represent Georgia in the Senate. It is not an exaggeration to say that those WNBA activists played a role in tipping the entire balance of power by helping Democrats win a majority in the U.S. Senate. Over the last few years, male athletes have given props to the athletes of the WNBA and reminded the public 
that the leadership of those women was indispensable. But true solidarity is a two-way street. Every male athlete who benefited from and praised the WNBA players' leadership and courage should be showing leadership themselves and speaking up for Griner. Their seemingly blithe disregard is the ultimate disrespect. There's still time for the men in the sports world to change course, but if they don't use their galactic platforms to amplify Griner's case, they'll be making a terrible choice. They may find themselves needing allies in the years ahead and wondering why the typically outspoken activists in the WNBA community are nowhere to be found. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and, and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. Now it's time for the part of the show we call Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down. The Just Stand Up Award has to go to the women of the U.S. Women's National Soccer Team, who now in their collective bargaining agreement have won pay equity from USA Soccer. A huge victory. This had been agreed to several months ago, as we spoke about on this podcast, but it still had to be codified in collective bargaining. And there were some people like former USA soccer goalie Hope Solo who criticized the deal a couple months ago precisely because it wasn't in the collective bargaining agreement. And therefore, as she pretty much made clear, didn't believe it was worth the paper it was printed on. And, you know, in some respects, she was right. I mean, until it was codified, uh, you know, like I said at the time, the best way to avoid a strike is to prepare for one. And you had to prepare always for USA Soccer to pull the Lucy football away from Charlie Brown because they have shown over years that they're not to be trusted when it comes to pay equity. But they won it. And props to them. And I'm hoping Hope Solo comes out and says the same because there's a huge rift between Hope Solo and the Megan Rapino generation. And it would be good to see those folks come together because this should be a victory that's recognized for all women, both the ones who paved the way, the ones playing today, and the ones looking towards the future. Uh, the Just Sit Your Ass Down Award, Sit Your Ass Down. Sit your ass down. Goes to this uh, sports yacker named Doug Gottlieb, who said that this other sports yacker, uh, named, uh, what the hell is his name? I can't remember his name. All these guys blend in my mind. But Doug Gottlieb basically said that to actually speak out against the racism that exists in the NCAA is, as he put it, almost as bad as real racism. He said fake racism is almost as bad as real racism. And then he said, don't you realize that uh, the NCAA has offered more scholarships than any entity since the GI Bill. Now, look, obviously Doug Gottlieb does not know anything about the history of racism in the GI Bill, or he wouldn't have used that as his great example of getting people into college. Absolutely absurd and ignorant. Read a history book, please, 
learn something about the history of racism and the denial of black people to the rights in the GI Bill that white soldiers returning from World War II were allowed. I mean, it's just, it's so funny, like saying like racism, why this is the best thing since the GI Bill, you know? It's like saying, I don't like water at all. I haven't liked water since I drank some sand. I mean, it just, it makes no sense whatsoever as a logical corollary, but he's an idiot. Um, but going forward, the idea that we shouldn't be calling out racism in the NCAA right now, uh, right now especially, um, is particularly absurd as these big name coaches like Jimbo Fisher and Nick Saban are fighting with one another over you know, name, image, and likeness rights and how players are being recruited to colleges. I mean, this is the time to really speak out about issues of race and power and how they've always dominated the revenue producing NCAA sports of basketball and football, which depends upon the centrality of black talent and black bodies. And gee, the shocking coincidence that those happen to be uh, the feeder systems into the pro leagues where the players are the least empowered. Funny how that works. And to call out the racism, as Doug Gottlieb said, is just as bad as real racism. Well, guess what? It's all real racism, Doug. So please, please, uh, just, I mean, I don't know what to say. Read a book. Read about the GI Bill. Start there. And then we'll move on to the NCAA. But I feel like we should start, you know, sequentially so you can build up a knowledge base before you start talking about issues that exist today. We are back on the Edge of Sports podcast brought to you by The Nation magazine. Now's the part of the show I'm just calling Topics with Jake. If we think of something better, I'll let you know. If you have a better idea, you can email me at edgesports at gmail.com. But Jake, how you doing, sir? I'm good. How are you? Doing well, doing well. Um, so we got seven topics we want to run through. Um, we've got about you know 15 minutes to do it, so let's rock and roll. All right. So our first topic yes. is going to be can LaMelo Ball be a number one option on a championship-caliber team? What, 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 what do you think? Wow, can LaMelo Ball be a number one option on a championship-caliber team? You know, I'm going to say no, and I'll tell you why. I think he's an unbelievable talent, uh, a generational talent. But the idea of a point guard being a generational talent on a team without help is pretty hard to see. I mean, well, I see him as a, as a, because I mean, we're talking like the greatest point guards of all time. Magic had Kareem, Isaiah had the Bad Boys, uh, I and of course Steph has has had Durant for two of his uh, three titles. I mean, so I mean, I'm going to go with no. He needs a hardcore second banana or even a first banana. Um, that he plays off, but if he gets that, then yeah, he's going to have all kinds of glory and championships in his career. That's he my could, take. He could still be a number one option on a championship caliber team with, like, he could have his his number two guys. Like, for example, what if what if Lamelo Ball had like, okay, so let's say Lamelo Ball would like, and in in the next couple of years, he's going to end up getting ahead of like somebody like Carl Anthony Towns. What if Carl Anthony Towns? He'd be a second option on that team. What if Carl Anthony Towns was on that team? This is just like an then example. they'd lose in the playoffs. Lamello, Carmelo Anthony Towns, and then a third option, let's say, I don't know, Chris Middleton. I know he's, like, old. I'm just naming examples, like, just yeah. shooting, shooting bullets out there. So if 
if he has options around him, in the next couple of years, I think he will develop, and I think he, he could be on a championship caliber team. Like, Chris Paul was the number one option on a championship caliber team. They just never got there. What team was Chris Paul the number uh, one option? Oh, was uh, Blake Griffin and uh, right. DeAndre Jordan. He was right. the number one option there. He was, but also Blake Griffin was a multiple-time All-Star, and Jordan made the yeah, All-Star team. I'm just course. saying that LaMelo have... needs other parts well, yeah, doesn't everybody? I mean, Jordan wouldn't have won all those rings without without Pippen. Yeah, but that was a there was a clear structure there. If you're talking about a clear structure where Lamelo is number one, I have a tougher time seeing it. All right, next topic. Sure. Okay, next topic. Do you want to do uh, M- uh, M- MVP of the playoffs and then uh, least valuable player of the playoffs? All right, so we're doing MVP of the playoffs and least valuable player of the playoffs. Uh, to me. The MVP of the playoffs so far has to be Luka Doncic. Uh, the quality of play has been off the page. He's had one bad game. Uh, yes, he he suffers a little bit on defense, but he's also leading at least the Western Conference in steals thus far. So he's not a total wash on defense at all. Although steals to me is the most overrated defensive statistic there is. But either way, Luka Doncic, that's my guy. Uh, you know, I I like the Luka Doncic pick. Because I think he's been playing really well, and I don't think anybody expected the um, I don't think anybody expected the Mavericks to be here in the um, in the Western Conference Finals. But I am going I am going to have to pick uh, Jason Tatum to be the the MVP of this playoff so far because he has just been lights out on scoring. He's also only had one bad game, and that was all the way back in like Game Three of Milwaukee. And he's just been he's been lights out efficiently. He is getting his boards. He I think he's been really good and he's led this Boston team who many had being eliminated in the first round. And then they I think I'm pre- they they swept Brooklyn, right? They 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 swept Brooklyn. Mm. And I think nobody expected him to be here. He's led that team. Of course they've had other pieces around him, but he's he's been that guy and I think he's okay. the MVP. Fair enough. I, I do take issue with the nobody expect them to be there because they were the hottest team uh, over the last them, 50 games of barely, the year. Barely. Yeah, you're right. But but the but they were a chic pick, I have to say. And maybe the Mavs should have been a chic pick. They they had the best record in the Western Conference since January. Yeah. So I think people slept on that a little bit. Um, okay, least valuable player. To me, this is a pretty easy pick. Actually, it's not because there have been several superstars who drop clunkers. But to see James Harden just fall off the proverbial cliff yeah. and just not be James Harden anymore. Now, some might say, well, you could say the same thing about Chris Paul. But Chris Paul had some dominating games this playoff. Mm-hmm. And then from what we hear, he had a quad injury and he's 37 years old. James Harden is 32. And so to see the wear and tear bring him down at this point, to see the hamstring not healed, yeah. to see him basically turn into somebody who, you know, is a very smart player, savvy, throws passes, but has no burst. Yeah, that's some serious LVP from a very disappointing 76ers team. I think you could say a lot of people for this award. And I think this player, a lot of people won't agree with, but I think they could have really won this series if, I mean, they they, they, they got lucky with Okay, I'm just going to say it's DeMar DeRozan, in my opinion. Ooh. Chris Middleton got injured in, like, game one. So it was an injury-riddled Bucks team against a team who was really hard. At the, they were really hot at the start of the year. And then they, 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 they started cooling down. But DeMar DeRozan, he, was, he had one really, really good game. Every single other game was just god-awful. I mean, he had—I I, I have the stats right in front of me. 
in game one, you know, we remember that six for 25. Oof. Then he had that 41. Then he had 11 points. Then he then he went eight for 20 in the next game. And then next game after that, he had 11 points. And he's getting, like, 40-plus minutes in all these. So he should be succeeding. And they got eliminated in five against a, a Giannis, Drew Holiday, then a bunch of, you know, uh, the average players. A bunch of Connaughton's. And then, and then the Bulls have a, all, all, all star players, all NBA players. Yeah, Zach, Zach Levine. Levine, Demar Derozan. You know, Lonzo Ball definitely should have been a, a better. He didn't really do much offensively uh, over just like his first Bulls season. But he also didn't he play in the playoffs, shooter. of course. Yeah, he didn't. But let's give him a chance. I'm not yeah. ready to write off Lonzo by any I'm, stretch. I'm not ready to write off Lonzo either. I just feel like if he if he really wants to succeed, then he needs to shoot the ball more because I think that he is a talented shooter and he's definitely developed since year one. So I, I want to see him shoot the ball more. But if he's not going to shoot, wait, why are we talking about Lonzo Ball? Well, okay, I'm just talking about <laughs> the team around them. All right, and then they also Vucevic who who. who uh, he, did he do that good? I nah, no, nah, it was a total washout by the Bulls, which a lot of people predicted because their record yeah. against top teams was total trash. Yeah. Next topic. Next topic. All right. So, what should this all over the place Lakers de- Lakers team do in the future? Should they contend? Should they re? Should they rebuild? What do, What do you think? Uh, this Lakers team, as long as you have a LeBron James who can score 30 points a game, you have to play for now. The Lakers, some people have said the Lakers should just trade LeBron and really start over from scratch, but there's no way that the Lakers, A, want to do a full rebuild, and B, want to give up something that will probably happen next year, and that's LeBron James breaking Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's all-time scoring record. Yeah. Uh, they want that in a Lakers uniform, because that will be an iconic moment. So because of that, they are not going to rebuild. And I agree with that, quite frankly. I agree that LeBron should break the record in a Lakers uniform. I love the continuity of it being Kareem in a Lakers uniform and then uh, LeBron in a Lakers uniform. I think that's a beautiful thing. Um, I also think that you know Russell Westbrook just does not work, and the sooner they do something about that, the better. And I'm a Russell Westbrook stan, but uh, you know they need to figure that out post-haste. So that's where I am. I, I, I kind of I agree with you for the most part. I do think that they should still try and contend, but I do think they need to they need to hit a reset button on all literally almost all the players around LeBron. I mean Anthony Davis. I think you you, you give him one more chance, even though he's been injured a lot. You give him a chance to try and to try and be that guy, you know, be be like with LeBron as the number one option, kind of, because they both should be they both should be doing that. I mean, because. Anthony Davis, we remember he was so dominant. So dominant, Pelicans. but you know what he's best known as right now, and it's mm-hmm. so sports world is so merciless. But Anthony Davis is to most fans right now the guy on the top seventy-five list who should not be there. Yeah, and he needs to prove himself. <laughs> I know he needs to prove himself, and by not being injured and showing out, because he can't show out. We know that. Mm-hmm. So. When he shows out, I'm saying when he shows out, when he's not injured this year, people are gonna people are gonna be having a different narrative on him. And then they also need to just get rid of Russell Westbrook, like which I, makes I me sad because I yeah, love Russ. We love Russ here, and what they should do is just do a swap him and John Wall, honestly. 
That would be interesting. Wall would do a lot better. Yeah, I mean, they're, the they're, they're, a lot, they're a lot like each other as of now. So I don't know how much it would change. But a change of scenery, I think, would be nice for both players. And then everything else needs to just go. I think they need a pat. I mean, I mean, nobody wants Taylor Horn Tucker. But they have to do something about him. Whether they develop him more and try to actually get him to be like a quality player. Or, or just trade him for a pack of nothing. I mean, because they, they, they need money. Mm-hmm. They have none, and they. It, it, it's kind of like sad to see a team. A great can, franchise brought a great, low. A great franchise brought low. That's a perfect way to say it because they have so many big contracts and so many old players. So it, it just it just won't work out the way that they're doing it right now. But no. I think they should still try and. And it's so annoying because you watch the Mavericks play, and it's such a basic formula. Formula: you get one dominant player. You get uh, who can pass like crazy. You get shooters, surround him with shooters, and one other player, in the Mavericks case, Jalen Brunson, who can create his own shot. Mm -hmm. That's all you got to do. Surround LeBron with one other person who can create their own shot and shooters. Yeah, so LeBron, a healthy AD, and shooters, you're a playoff team. I I, I do agree with that. All right, next, next question. Who are the top? Okay, we have, all right. Who are the top contenders to win it all in this WNBA season? It just started, so it, we're, we're still pretty fresh, you know. Who 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 do you think are the t- the like true like top three, top four contenders right now? Well, hold on one second, hold on one second, because I have my. Well, I mean, honestly, our Washington Mystics are really exciting to me right now. As we're doing this, they're five and one. Uh, they're getting more players back. Um, I mean, it's just, it's a very exciting, uh, team and I love the way that they're operating right now. I love the way their rookies are operating. Um, and you know, as long as you have Natasha cloud on your team, uh, you're going to be okay. So I like the mystics. I sound like a bit of a homer, uh, but I love the way they're playing and it's such a short season in the WNBA that starting five and one is actually a big deal. Yeah. I mean, this Washington Mystic team is absolutely unreal. You know, you've, you have Elena Deladon, Elena Deladon, who is an amazing player. You know, she she has been for a very long time. Her and Natasha Cloud both are just, like, carrying this team on their back, even though they still have, like, a bunch of solid players around them. I think them, and then also over in the Western Conference, you know, you have the, the Las Vegas Aces who are who are doing really well. And I think those are your two top contenders right now, both sitting at five and one. And I'll, I'll never count out the Phoenix Mercury because of Diana Taurasi. So we'll see what what happens there. Yeah. Okay, so we also, only also sorry. Oh, sorry. sorry go ahead. Also, the Chicago Sky, who has not started off great, but you know they have talent. They have talent, of course. I mean, Candace Parker, and then they also have all these other pieces around them, and they just won it last year. So mm-hmm. they, they, they should still be up there, even though they're not starting off great. Okay, we got 90 seconds left. So what do you got? All right, well, we have three other topics. Which one do you want to go with? Should, should we say all three? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so our three topics left. We have uh, Nick Saban and Jimbo Fisher, that whole yeah. situation. We have will Kenny Pickett succeed in the NFL? Blech. And what's Adley's ceiling in the MLB? And what's well- Adley Rutschman's ceiling in the MLB? There we go. <laughs> For those who well- don't know... We're doing this after two consecutive walk-off home run games for the Baltimore <laughs> Orioles, 
followed by the news that the best prospect in all of Major League Baseball, catcher Adley Rutschman, is going to be brought up to the team. So, Jacob, hmm. talk to me. What's his ceiling? I mean, I think he, he in, in the next couple of years, you know, we could be talking about this dude as the best catcher in the MLB. I mean, he's great defensively. He, he, he's a good hitter, you know. I mean, he was the number one prospect for the reason. He did really well. I mean, he was in the minors, I think, for maybe, maybe even too long. I mean, he was there for roughly three years. And honestly, he is getting a little bit old to be, like, being brought up because he is 24 years old. But I think he is going to fit so well with this Orioles team, you know. He is going to start right away. He's excuse me, he's going to show why he was picked over Bobby Wood Jr. And he is going to show why people should stop doubting him. Absolutely. Atlee Rutschman, to have a catcher that good. And catchers tend to be brought up a little bit later. So I have yeah. no problem with him being okay. 24. Yeah. Um, and it means he's now seasoned as a rookie. He's mm -hmm. not coming up as somebody who's going to take a year for adjustment. Um, I just I love this Orioles team. I love what they're doing. And when you think of this team, when you just stick Rutschman into that lineup, you're now dealing with like a serious major league lineup. And we haven't yeah. been able to say that in Baltimore for quite a few years. I mean, once Ryan Mountcastle comes back from his from his hamstring injury, I think it is. He's yeah. on the 10 day. Once he comes back, I mean, this lineup's going to be real scary. Stacked, baby. Stacked. Well, Jacob James, we got through it all. What do you think of our first segment of Topics with Jake? I think it went great. Yeah, all we need is a better name for the segment. Because I want to keep Jake's takes for the football, you know? Yeah. me on that. Yeah. All right, cool. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Thank you so much to our guest, Tony Smith-Thompson. Thank you so much to Jake for joining in with us. Thank you so much to the producer of this podcast, David Tigaboo. For everybody out there listening, please stay frosty and mask up for goodness sakes. We are out of here. Peace. <laughs>